Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for April 16th, 2022, or 2023. I'm a whole year off. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shipley. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's show. Um, in about 20 minutes, calling in for at least the third or fourth time uh, from Tennessee, Kara Turrington is going to be our guest. She's actually been a guest host um, one of the last times she was on, but Kara's going to come in and talk to us about all the political happenings in Tennessee. You know, the other week we discussed it without Kara. Now we're going to have a Tennessee uh, resident political consultant with us, so we're excited about that. But before then, we like to do buy, sell, holds, and we've been kind of stacking up one or two because we've got some topics. But now we've had more candidates jump into um, uh, into the race, um, some that have been there before. So we're going to start right there. And, guys, I tell you what, I'm going to do something that no one would do, and we're going to start this race with, in many ways, I guess the least known candidate of the four, former Arkansas governor Asa Hutchinson. I believe he was also a congressman, and maybe his brother was a senator, if I'm remembering. The Hutchinson family's been around Arkansas politics a long time. He said he's running for president. Um, I didn't really see that one coming. But, um, Tim, would you buy, sell, hold Asa Hutchinson's chances for both the nomination and for the president? He's running. He's not even registering in some polls, running at zero percent. He has no chance, and Trump is the main reason that he has no chance. I'll sell him. Yeah. All right. Uh, we may get there all four before Kara comes on. Who knows? Uh, Catherine, uh, buy, sell, hold Asa Hutchinson. I'm going to sell him. He's uh I think he mistakenly believes that he may have some name recognition or some uh, some influence from before, but I think he's a um, it's time it, it, he he doesn't have a chance <laughs> as Tim said. So yeah, I'm selling him. Yeah, um, I'll try to be maybe slightly more positive than y'all um, because y'all left me a lot of room to do that. As far as the nomination for the Republican Party, I'm going to sell him because, I mean, it is Trump, Trump, and more Trump. And even if it wasn't Trump, I think he still falls down the pecking order further. Because if I'm not mistaken, at the end of his second gubernatorial term, he actually had some positions, I won't call them moderate, but he actually um, spoke out on a few issues, not with a, you know, complete, you know, blood in your eyes, uh, right-wing Republican position. And that would come back to hurt him in the uh, nomination process. I don't think his name ID is that strong. 
honestly, I think if you did a poll who has stronger uh, favorables in the Republican electorate, him or Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I think she might be more popular in that state among Republicans. And that means that's a terrible place for him to be. Um, now, going for, let's say, some crazy reason he gets the nomination, I think his chances would be better than they are for the nomination itself. I would still do no better than whole, um, but that's how weird the, the Republican primary is in which somebody, if they got the nomination, might have better chances there than they do getting the nomination. I think going back a few weeks, Nikki Haley's in that position where she would do better in the, the, as, the nominee, as the nominee in the general than she will be doing the um, nomination process. So long-winded way to say that nobody's buying Asa Hutchinson stock on the country by the night. <laughs> All right. So we've moved on quick. Well, let's go ahead. Let's keep it clean and go through both Republicans first. Um, a name that people know a bit more. Uh, he is the only uh, currently elected Republican African-American senator in the U.S. Senate, Tim Scott. He served multiple terms. He's decided to run for Senate. Uh, Catherine, I'll let you go first on Tim Scott. Buy, sell, hold. Well, I think I <clears throat> – only because I'd like to see how the campaign goes, I'm going to hold him. Just because I'm kind of curious about what the reaction to him will be and if he and and what how he's going to campaign. Like what what's that going to look like? A black Republican running for president? But I don't think he has much of a chance. But I'd like to see I'd like to see that campaign. Okay, and Tim, buy, sell, hold Tim Scott. Well, here's why he's probably jumping in the race when people are scratching their heads and saying, why would he do that? Number one, uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but he's he's already 57 years old. He, he, got, he got into national politics a little late. Uh, so... His age is one thing that's making him say, maybe I better go ahead and, you know, dip my finger in the water. Uh, another thing, he doesn't have to run for re-election in South Carolina until 2028. He just uh, got yeah. re-elected last year. So I guess he figures, why not? Um, now, the downside is, in the polling right now, since he's announced, he's at 7% in his home state. <laughs> he is running at 7% in the polls in South Carolina. Uh, so I'm going to sell. I mean, it, he has no chance unless I think something happens to Trump. Could be, though, he might be... Uh, making himself available for the number two spot on the ticket. What do you think, David? I, I don't even think he's a, a good shot at number two um, because of what I'm about to say. You know, if you said, who's the nicest guy in the GOP currently? I think Tim Scott makes a short list. He seems like the proverbial happy warrior. He has an interview he did about two years ago with Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. 
very affable. Probably one of the better conversations Trevor Noah's probably ever had with a Republican. Um, very cordial and congenial. And that's exactly what the current modern-day GOP doesn't want. They want to own the libs, and so the guy that can own the libs but doesn't agree with them, tell him you for the nomination as hard as I can. Yeah. Uh, once again, like Asa Hutchinson, he probably does have a better shot in the general. Tim, you had a question? Yeah, I was asking, yeah. are you still with us? You were breaking up. Catherine, you didn't know this, but David's on the road. So. Yeah, I do know that. I saw that. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. And uh, but but yeah, Tim Scott is just um, he's just not the right moment for this time in the GOP. If I'm keep on breaking up, let me know, and y'all just move on without me for a minute until I get in a better spot. Um, and I apologize for this, but I'll tell you this: um, when you were talking about South Carolina, you know, Nikki Haley is running like third in South Carolina which is terrible, given you were the governor. Tim Scott is the current sitting senator, been a senator multiple terms, and he's running fourth or fifth because he may be behind Mike Pence. And Nikki Haley, or nor Tim Scott, has been endorsed by the other statewide pop, uh, politician, Henry McMasters, or Lindsey Graham. And so without Lindsey Graham and uh, Henry McMaster uh, not supporting you, and they're both supporting Donald Trump, what case do you, can you make to voters, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I'm curious to see and why I'm holding it. Yeah, I, I mean, Tim, how much is that an impediment that they're going to probably finish assuming other folks run? And we, we know one, you know, maybe a 100-pound gorilla, not 800-pound, because that's Trump, uh, is not, may not well, even run. But if they don't even win South Carolina, is there any there there? No, of course there's not. You know, we've discussed these percentages before. Seventy percent of the party is either for Trump or are there for positions that Trump takes or they're for the type of candidate that Trump would be. Uh, that only leaves 30% for for the other candidates that want to position themselves as a not-Trump. I, I, I don't think Tim Scott would describe himself as a never-Trump, but he's certainly not Trump, uh, and, and for some of the reasons you've already mentioned. So there just isn't that much vote there available for him to get. These people, like I said, are going to have to hope that something happens to Trump that he doesn't run, then it's a new ball game the way they figured it, and they wanted to go ahead and be in the race just in case. Yeah, and I want to go deeper on Tim Scott in this. Um, you remember when uh, Barack Obama won in 2008, and the Republican Party is like, the country's getting more diverse, we're not diverse, and they wrote the autopsy. And part of that, and this may be happened before the autopsy, they appointed or elected – Michael Steele, head of the GOP. And a lot of the GOP rejected that. They, they were kind of like, oh, that's a diversity hire. Well, at this moment in the Republican Party, they seem to hate everything that's DEI. They actually call it critical race theory, even though it's not. It's diversity initiatives. But won't his candidacy feel to a lot of Republicans 
that reject um, what they may call diversity for the diversity's sake, won't they reject Tim Scott's candidacy, even though that's highly unfair to pigeonhole it like that, Catherine? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> very highly unfair and very likely. And not surprising. No. I mean, Tim, do you think that actually, whereas you would think his race would be a positive because it would show that the Republican Party has some diversity, that people of other races can be Republicans, not just, you know, white males that have been here forever. Um, Could it actually hurt him in a primary at this moment in time, the GOP? Well, I would think so because such a large disagreement disproportionate share of the Republican vote is white, older, conservative. There, and no people, I'm not calling anybody a racist. Don't, don't, so no nasty letters or nothing, if you don't mind. Um, but, but that's just the way the Republican electorate is made up. They, they prefer one of their own. They even prefer a, a man over a woman. And, you know, the reason we know that is because that's who they've always nominated and run. Uh, that, that's just the way things are right now in that party where he would come in handy, though. And I can see why you would say Trump would never pick him, but he would come in handy as the number two on the ticket. Uh, Joe Biden got 92% of the black vote. He, he ran it up really well all over the country, and they voted heavily and in big numbers for him. They came out to vote. Uh, if a Republican nominee could somehow get Oh, that number for a Democratic nominee to less than ninety percent? Hey, that's that that now now you talking now you putting uh, real pressure on the Democrats in Georgia, for instance, and some other states where it was close and the black vote made the difference, and they certainly did in this state. But as a nominee. He's just not going to get there. At number one, Trump's in the race no matter who he is. And number two, I'm not going to believe that they're going to nominate an African-American until they nominate an African-American, because historically they never have. Yeah, and I'll tell you, um, you mentioned that, you know, if Trump were to pick him as number two and that kind of thing, I actually don't think he would persuade Tim Scott is the vice presidential candidate. I don't think he would persuade that many African-American voters. Where it might help is some of the voters that either would just not vote for Trump or, um, you know, possibly switch to the Democrats. They might say, oh, well, this shows that, you know, Donald Trump's not really a racist. You know, that kind of cover. <laughs> I think that's where, and, and, you know, that percent, but, but that's kind of where I think you would actually – um, might influence actually more voters, and it would be very superficial. But I think a lot of his really hardcore base folks might be, and I don't mean the voters. I mean like the Marjorie Taylor Greene and the um, Carrie Lakes and all those folks that, you know, really do fit that in-your-face mantra. They might kind of be offended 
not because of Tim Scott's race, but because of Tim Scott's demeanor. Don't you want a fighter when they're trying to, you know, indict you? Don't you want somebody to fight tooth and nail for you? Not Mike Pence part two, but somebody like a Kerry Lake or a Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's why I think that might get pushed back as well. Um, so many wrinkles on this. Well, let's see if we can at least get one more started, um, if not finished. And that would be another entrance into the Democratic side. And his father would be quite famous. He not as much so, uh, but he is a junior. And that would be Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. has announced he's going to run for the Democratic nomination, regardless if um, the current occupant seeks re-election. Um, Catherine, your buy-seller hold on Robert Kennedy Jr. Sell. So, I don't know what he's – I don't know. I'm so disappointed in that man. <laughs> um, there was a time when uh, I really respected him. He was always been very outspoken about – the environment, about conservation and poverty, and somewhere he took a weird path and became this anti-vax kind of uh, just volatile uh, firebrand, and I'm just disappointed. There was a time when I would have been really excited to see this, but I I just don't think he's right. He's not right for the job, and he's not. Uh, I, I'm just no. I'm, I say so. Okay, uh, good information. Hey, uh, Tim, buy sell hold on Robert Kennedy Jr. Oh, gee, this is hopeless. He he's he's viewed because of some of the reasons Catherine's given as something of a fringe candidate. Now, never in my life did I think I would say that about a Kennedy. And, you know, his own family is not supporting this. I mean, they love Joe Biden. Joe Biden has a picture of Robert F. Kennedy in the Oval Office. Um Joe Biden, when he got off the plane the other day, the first thing he did was wish Ethel Kennedy a happy birthday. And, and, and member after member after member of that family have come out and said that they would be supporting the president and not him, this anti-vaxxer stuff. And, and you know, I, it, it, it's just, oh, sell him. It, he's, he's not his father, that's all I can tell you. Yes, uh, and Catherine Harkin, I'm going to sell as well. I'm going to sell for the nomination, and I can't even foresee a scenario in which he would get the nomination, even consider the general. But I think, Catherine, you really brought it up when you said the environmentalism, people remember that, and that's considered a positive. But then in the past three or four years, he's just gotten so tied to this anti vaccine, and that's not just COVID, but other things, but particularly COVID, and that just seems like such a strange place to be in the Democratic Party, because not only is it like, you know, how we would respond to one health crisis, it's kind of anti-science, anti-medicine, anti-intellectualism, 
And if we think about what's a core dividing line between the two parties, it is how they view research and science. That has become a major wedge issue. If it's just good old common sense that doesn't, you know, look at any research, well, then you might be a Republican. But if you look at scientific research and what the data shows, you might be a Democrat. And it's like he's completely flipped the script, and that's really not a good script to flip. Catherine, how much of an impediment do you think that'll be? And then, Tim, you can piggyback on that. Oh, I think that's a huge impediment for um, your, you know, ordinary Democrat. Um, I think there's some people who are. I think Tim made a made it said it really well on the fringe. I think this is a he's a fringe candidate, and I think there may be some fringe voters on, in either party that may uh, respond well to this, you know anti-vax uh, sort of – and there's a little bit of a libertarian bent to him, too. It's very strange. Um, I think there's some people that might respond to it, but certainly not enough to make a difference. And I think he ends up making um, a fool of himself rather than the party. That's my take. Yes. Are you still there, Tim? I mean, David. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Tim, if 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 I could add anything, this, this guy knows better than this. He he's just, he's a, a year older than I am, so he certainly remembers uh, his uncle being president. He remembers his father being the attorney general and U.S. senator and running for president himself. He's been around politics all of his life. His uncle was a senator's senator, uh, as he was known, a line of the Senate. And, and, and he's always been around national politics. He knows that he has no chance in the world to get the Democratic nomination away from Joe Biden. Perhaps he thinks it'll be enough for him to make the race, uh, get some ish- some of his issues out there that he care about. Maybe he thinks he can win a few delegates and get a speaking spot at the convention, but he can't believe that he can go any further than that, uh, no matter what he says and that I believe that's that's just where he is. But don't you think it's kind of weird that, like, couldn't he get a speaking spot at the convention anyway? Like, not a what, prime. Can, can I jump not in? a prime. Uh, yeah, I, I say no too, but um, because of the anti-COVID, um, you know, messaging. But right now, let's switch gears and get back to what has just become the most intriguing political, political state in the past month. Um, and Tennessee, and welcome back to the Country Vine, Kara Turrington. Welcome, Kara. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I'm glad to be back with you. Oh, yes. Good. So good to have you on. Well, um, Kara, we know that one one reason that, that um, Tennessee's in the news is what they did to completely did to two of their lawmakers and tried to do 
and were unsuccessful with a third. And so I wanted to ask you a question, a uh, kind of what if about the third, because uh, one lawmaker was from Memphis, one lawmaker uh-huh. was from Nashville, and one was from Knoxville. Memphis and Nashville have more progressive, Democratic-leaning um, local governments. But in Knoxville, they have apparently have a county mayor, uh, Glenn Jacobs, who's pretty famous for his wrestling career, who is very much mm-hmm. a libertarian Republican. And if uh, the special education teacher lawmaker from Knoxville, she would have been put off of the uh, legislature, would, was there any chance that she would have been reappointed with the other two, or would she not have been reappointed? And what do you think that would have done to the narrative? Oh, my goodness. You know, having a, a situation where duly elected individuals are simply, you know, erased off of the leadership roles uh, is it, just a detriment to democracy. And it was fortunate that the, the two representatives were able to get reappointed. In Representative Gloria Johnson's case out of Knoxville, you know, there was uh, an understanding, and, and uh, Representative Sam McKenzie out of Knoxville spoke on this while defending her during this kind of sham of a hearing, if you will, that, you know, there were already plans to appoint a Republican to represent uh, Johnson's seat in the event that she was expelled, this is a representative that had won her seat by double digits. And so the idea of a Republican getting appointed to that seat certainly would have been against what the voters had asked for. They had extreme confidence in Representative Johnson. And fortunately, she was able to avoid being expelled just by one vote. Yes. Now, so how many lawmakers exactly voted to keep her that voted against the two uh, Justins that are state representatives? Ooh, let me see. I don't know that I've got that down on my notes here exactly, well, but You don't I have believe... to give it the exact number. Yeah, because that kind of leads yeah. into a bigger question. Did any of those lawmakers say why they chose to keep her but then voted the the other two lawmakers out? Yeah. So what what really was interesting here is, you know, Representative Johnson was able to stay uh, because of one vote. There was a representative, um, Representative Garrett, I believe, that was apparently supposed to vote to expel Representative Johnson and, and changed his mind at the last minute. And if you're following this, you know that there was some recordings leaked of the Republicans kind of getting together after the fallout of this and trying to figure out what happened and how their vote fell through. And part of those recordings revealed that for Representative Garrett and maybe even one other representative, they simply didn't see the resolution that had been put forward as accurate. You know, it was very clear um, that the other two representatives were very vocal, used the bullhorn, you know, really – uh, were leading the protesting and, and, and being in solidarity with the thousands of people that were outside of that room, just as Representative Johnson did, who stood with her colleagues, but did not specifically do all of those additional things, like use the bullhorn and, and, use, and do the chanting and that kind of thing. And so 
you know, that really hit a chord with Representative Garrett, and he decided that, look, this was kind of floppy. Based on this recording that was released, this was kind of floppy, and if we're going to do this kind of thing, we need to do it right. And so he voted to keep her, and she was able to, to keep her seat without being expelled. And then, of course, luckily the other two gentlemen got reappointed quickly, making the Republicans look uh, very silly. Um, well, oh, yeah. let me ask you one of the questions that's a bit different but still related to this, and I'm going to pass it to Catherine and Tim after that. I saw a tweet um, regarding how Republicans have, you know, not only this issue but how they're, they're complete non-response to gun violence in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And it said Republicans in Tennessee are going to turn um, Nashville into Dane County, that being Madison, Wisconsin. And it's, that's a pretty Democratic area. I believe it's like 80-20 at this point. Um, how accurate and how far off uh, do you think that kind of analogy is that, that a place like Nashville, while it might be one of the more progressive places, that didn't come anywhere close to uh, Madison, Wisconsin? Hmm. You know, I think that what's happened has really sparked an opportunity for the Tennessee Democratic Party and for all of the auxiliary groups that support democracy, whether it is, you know, groups like Planned Parenthood or Indivisible or whether it's, you know, organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League and, and Turk. There's so many groups that are focused on making sure that people get to exercise their right to vote, that, that they have a voice in their uh, representatives, that they're able to elect the people that they, that they choose to elect duly and fairly. And I think that what you see now is an opportunity for all of the organizations that are working um, to leverage this moment think about the strategic way forward. You know, how do we break this supermajority? How do we get disenfranchised voters on the rolls? How do we get folks that don't have an ID and they're impacted by some of these voter suppression laws in the game when it comes time to vote? How do we put more public pressure like what we saw during this during this past week to get folks like Governor Lee to move on gun violence, which he says he wants to do now. Um, So I think, you know, can Tennessee go back to a place where it's uber-democratic? There was a time that Tennessee was blue. I mean, I believe it was 1991 that it went for Bill Clinton for president, right? We had the vice president, Al Gore, run as well. He didn't didn't win his state, but, you know, we started seeing the Republicans systematically – take over you know, all of the state house seats. I think there's at least 75 of them now in this supermajority. That can, I believe, be rolled back. Is it going to happen in the next cycle or next two cycles? It's, but with the energy that has happened, all of the attention on Tennessee now is the time to start picking off these, these folks, breaking the supermajority and moving the legislature to something that's a little more balanced. Yes, yes, and, and um, I think it was 96 uh, the Democrats last one, Tennessee, so not even 92 and 96. Al Gore delivered his home state as a vice president, and then something happened in that four-year period, 
of that move started okay. happening. Well, I'm going to pass it to Catherine, who'll pass it to Tim for more questions. Catherine? Yeah. Hey, Kara, thanks for being on tonight. It's great okay. to hear such uh, eloquent discussion of Tennessee. I really appreciate it. Um, I want to ask you, you mentioned um, yeah. Governor Lee uh, talking about gun reform. I saw a brief article about it. Is that like, I mean, my response to that was, he must not be reading the room of Tennessee Republicans to Mm -hmm. mention that because they seem so, um, I mean, even with the shootings, the shooting in Nashville and then all the other ones, you know, we had two more overnight and yeah. What, what's his, uh, what's his, I mean, is this like a legitimate um, response to what's going on and will he push that or is it just, uh, you know, pablum for the masses. You know, I think that unfortunately we have a, a situation here where, um, you know, the governor's immediate family has been impacted, right? I believe that uh, First Lady of Tennessee had a friend, lost a friend in that shooting, um, and that, of course, it shouldn't take that. But I believe that that has a a lot to do with the governor moving, um, you know, almost 360 on this issue. I mean, Tennessee has not been able to get any movement on gun violence prevention, gun reform in any kind of way. It's it's a place where um, access to guns is very open and available. The ability to take a gun almost anywhere is the law of the land. And so, you know, the governor said that he wanted an order protection plan. He wanted the GOP to come back with, you know, something that he could sign quickly. He said he would move by executive order to work on background checks and red flag laws. Um, all of all of the kinds of language that we've been talking about, if you have been following the gun violence and gun reform movement over the decades, right? And so will it happen? Um, we we did see that the governor signed an executive order strengthening back, background checks like that did happen. He talked about having, you know, security officers in every school. Is that the right response? That's debatable. But will there be any real effort to reduce the number of guns on the street, to reduce access to um, what we call weapons of war, you know, multi-magazine type weapons, AR-15 specifically, um, you know, will there be an effort to reduce those? We're, we're still holding our breath there. I don't know that, that this legislature um, is going to get that far. And so in the coming uh, weeks left in this session, hopefully, you know, we'll see some movement um, as the GOP works to leverage their supermajority. I know they don't want to give a lot on this, but this, again, is another opportunity for Democrats to keep the pressure on and to make sure some meaningful reform happens. And do you think that so, – so it's possible that this could actually come to some reform, it sounds like. I think that, I think that some reform will happen, and it will be the first time – 
in, I believe, more than 50 years that any kind of gun reform has happened in Tennessee. But is it going to be enough? Is it going to be focused on the actual reduction of guns? Is yet to be seen. Yeah. It's yet just to be so, um, so frustrating to watch it, you know. It just, uh, anyway, it's such a long story, it's such a big story. Thank you for that. That's very interesting, and I really appreciate yeah. your take on it. And I'm going to pass it to Tim, who has a big, long list of questions, I think. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. But I promise, but I promise <laughs> to only ask a couple of them in the interest of time. And the first one I want to ask you, Tara, is this. Tennessee consistently ranks near the bottom of state voter turnout nationwide. There, there were like 46 in turnout in uh, the 2020 presidential election. Why is that? Ooh, so there's a, there's a combination of issues um, around voter turnout in Tennessee. You have very restrictive, and, and it's, it's on both, both ends of the camp. You know, the GOP worked really hard to try to push a bill that would restrict even who could register people to vote. Um, it, it really caused a chilling effect, and there were some great organizations that worked really hard to stop that law. Um, the Equity Alliance, one of those groups, there there was lots of those other auxiliary groups that I that I mentioned earlier, the NAACP, Urban League, and others that were that fought really hard to ensure. Um, that the GOP law, their effort to pass a law to even make it almost basically illegal to register people to vote, that that did not pass. You would have had to get training by, you know, a Republican-led training organization. You would have had to get registered with them in order to be allowed to submit. And if for some reason you registered people and there were errors or changes or any issues, if you had too many of them, you would get really, really exorbitant fines, which for small grassroots organizations would have just been unaffordable. So there's been an effort on on that end of the spectrum to just make it harder for organizations to come into the state of Tennessee, get on the ground, and register people to vote. Um, so that's part of it. The other part of it is that you have voter suppression laws like voter ID laws that require you to have a state ID. Um, and that really just enfranchises young people, college students that have moved to the area, they're living on campus, but they may not have a Tennessee ID, but they're living there for the next two to three years. They are unable to vote. They are unable to be involved. Um, if you are, you know, maybe an older individual and you need to go and get all of your documentation, before you can get the state ID, that could be a hindrance. And so, you know, those those types of practices, and we've seen those in other parts of the country, really have a chilling effect on, on turnout. Um, you've had your blue havens, if you will, with Nashville, there's the blue areas, Clark Hill's becoming more blue, um, that have continued to be, you know, economic drivers of the state, very, very, you know, critical seats that the congressional member has always lived in. Now there's been this systematic effort to break up that Democratic power. So in the last redistricting effort, um, the Nashville was broken up into multiple pieces. And so Nashville, the capital of Tennessee, no longer has a congressional member that lives in the city. 
They all live in a slither of the district that has a little piece of Nashville, and then they're they're all rural um, in terms of where they live in a more Republican area. And so we saw this happen in Texas, and there was a huge uproar against it. As soon as they could, they, they rewound that back so that Austin was whole again in a district because it impacts economic stability. It impacts, you know, leveraging the city as a whole when you don't have a congressional member fighting for federal dollars in the city. And I think we're going to see the impact of that. Um, we have about half a million people who are just disenfranchised whether it's because they're a returning citizen and they're unable to vote, whether they are, um, whether they may have, you know, fees or fines impacting their ability to get their rights restored. So there's a, it's just a combination of issues that are impacting a lot of people's ability to vote. But, but what we see is that now there's so much uh, additional resource that has poured into the state, so many people that are now going to be able to get on the ground and hopefully help those folks um, get on the voter rolls and make an impact as what I hope is a bigger goal to break that supermajority. So I think that energy around getting people on the polls, getting people voting, I mean, you know, we always try to say, you know, Tennessee's not a red state, it's just not a voting state. And if people Mm -hmm. voted, Tennessee would be in a different direction. You know, I, I understand the desire to defeat the other party at, at the polls. I, I, I'm pretty partisan myself, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. But but as I watch what is going on in Tennessee, and I've seen this in a couple of other states too, it appears that all this goes beyond electoral victory. It, it mm-hmm. appears with some of the moves that the Republicans are making, that they're literally trying to annihilate the Democratic Party, to 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 eliminate it there. A- am I right about that? I think those of us that are, are strong Democrats uh, from Tennessee, living in Tennessee, that's exactly how we feel. There is an effort to squash the Democratic impact um, and influence in all of the policy work that is happening in and around Nashville, in and around Memphis. I mean, you are seeing the Tennessee um, GOP have incredible overreach into Nashville, doing things like taking over the airport authority and, and the transportation authority and moving duly appointed board members out of the way so that more conservative board members can, can be placed there, overarching into the uh, Metro Council, in effort to shrink Nashville's Metro Council uh, down to 15 members and passing a statewide bill saying, you know, no more than, I believe no more than, no city can have a council over 20. It's a bill that only impacted Nashville, very clear that it was targeted toward the, the, the capital city. And so this effort to break up the democratic power at the local level, uh, and and we see that it's very limited at the state level, is very, very intentional. And that mm. is why with this energy, with this focus, that breaking up that supermajority has to be everybody's goal. We've got to get more Democrats elected, break that supermajority, and give our city sovereignty to make decisions mm-hmm. for themselves. So, so oh. it's, it's very true. No. Oh. 
Um, I'm, I'm going to um, avoid any questions about the Tennessee Three and what went on there. I'm, I think I'm going to leave the rest of those for David because I want to ask you about one more thing. And the reason I want to ask about it is even in Georgia, what I'm about to ask you about was rejected by the state legislature here, the Republican state legislature. And my question is, is Tennessee going to enact a statewide voucher program? Yeah. You know, Georgia Republicans, I mean, they rejected this idea that you should right. take public money and, you know, just make it a free market uh, system. Uh, we see it being pushed heavily by Governor DeSantis out of Florida. And there's been an effort and an expanding effort to impact the public schools across the state of Tennessee. I don't know that Tennessee is going to follow suit with Georgia. Um, Tennessee has often been a leading state when it comes to some of the most extreme efforts, Um, you know, lots of anti-LGBTQIA bills, lots of anti-transgender bills, lots of anti-voting bills, lots of anti-reproductive justice bills. And so I bet that our GOP says, I'm going to do, you know, we're going to do and get done what Georgia couldn't get done. And, you know, I think it's yet to be seen, but it would be a blow to public education to not have fully funded uh, public schools. And I, I, I unfortunately think that our GOP now is looking for some kind of recovery. I think they're looking for some kind of cover from national Republicans, and they may go forward with this, you know, trying to find an avenue to turn the corner and, and move the conversation along from what happened last week. Oh, goodness. Well, I I hope for the sake of of you folks and and for the students of Tennessee that that doesn't happen. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes, Kara, I did have one more question. It was about education, but not K-12 education, but higher education. Just read Uh at the end of the week that Tennessee is proposing a bill where college students that feel that their um, instructors and professors are discussing subversive subject matter or controversial subject matter can report their um, professors. What is the reaction in the state been to that bill? Look, colleges and universities are supposed to be a place where you – get exposed to a lot of different ideas and you learn and you grow and you develop your expertise in whatever field you're going into as you proceed into the work world, right? It's supposed to be a place of learning and exposure and access. And, you know, even our Tennessee GOP now is is trying to have overarching uh, influence on, you know, Tennessee State University in, in terms of taking over their board of trustees. Um, and we see an attack on higher institutions of learning, you know, all over the country. But this idea that a student can, you know, simply reject a curriculum or suggest that a teacher is somehow, you know, going too far on the issues, particularly for classes that are built around subject matter like African-American history, like women's studies, like international policies, you know, the idea that well i don't I don't like that fact 
or I don't believe that fact doesn't inspire a culture where people are going and reading and getting more facts and more scholarship on the issue, but simply trying to legislate a culture where only what I believe is allowed. And that is not patriotic. That is not American. And so it's wrong. I think we all have to fight against it. We, we have to ensure that our, our institutions of higher learning are a place that give people the freedom to be exposed to other ways of thought and, and ideology and to prepare them to make determinations for themselves about what they believe and how they move forward in the world. But it shouldn't be a place of uh, indoctrination by legislation. Uh, you know, people should be able to choose what they dig into, what they read, what they study. And educators who have taken the time to become experts in their subject matter uh, should be should not be afraid to talk about the issues. We see that happening in K through 12, where teachers are afraid to say fundamental things like slavery is wrong. They're afraid to say that in our public schools. They're afraid to talk about that being wrong, and that is dangerous. And so, you know, in the, in institutions of higher learning where you should be able to have a debate, be able to have a conversation, be able to talk about the facts, be able to go and research facts to back up your claim, uh, to not be able to do that is just completely un-American. Yes. Well, Carol, this has been a wonderful, fascinating conversation, and there's so many topics just in the state of Tennessee we didn't get to we didn't even get to the sorted resume of Andy Ogles. So we want to reserve the right to have you back on at some point <laughs> in the future. But until we get you back, if you want to let our listeners know how they can follow you on social media, if I'm not mistaken, you kinda of have a news site as a part of your um political consulting site. So just tell folks all the ways they can get a hold of you. Well, it's always a pleasure to be with you. You can reach me on Twitter at Kara Turrentine, uh, TurrentyPolitical.com, info at TurrentyPolitical. Um, on my Twitter handle, I put out a daily newsletter on kind of the breaking latest uh, news, political news of the day. So I look forward to connecting with you all, and, and I look forward to being back. Thank you so all much. All right. Thanks again so much. Thank you. Have a great night. Bye. Me too. That was Kara Turntine, political consultant extraordinaire out of Nashville. Um, of course, people hear these Tennessee stories and um, they think one thing, but Nashville is such a vibrant, growing, progressive city, and so is Memphis, and so is um, Chattanooga, and I mean, not as large, and then Knoxville, where the, the state university is, um, flagship university. So Tennessee has these places that if they kind of become the um, leading force in the state, they can change the direction there. Um, well, folks, we had talked about three of the four candidates that have announced for president in the last few weeks, and we got one more. Um, the guy that currently has the job, Joe Biden, he has announced that he is running for vice president. I'm sorry, he's right running for president re-election, and that seems to be, to me, one of the worst-kept secrets in Washington that that would happen. So, um, Catherine, buy, sell, hold Joe Biden running for re-election. I'm buying him. 
I uh, I was a little worried about him, but I think he's been very uh, uh, what's the word um, flexible and um, a strong leader and. While I'd like to see someone younger, I don't see anyone stepping up, and I think we need to give him a second, sh- uh, another, another four years. That's my take on it. Okay, Kim, buy, sell, hold. Well, I know they talk about age being an issue, but his opponent is going to be in his late seventies. And if you just look at the two men, he certainly looks to be. <laughs> Uh, exactly. healthier of the two. He's not having Big Mac attacks and such. Uh, and he has been, I believe, what the American people elected him to be. And that's two things. Number one is not Donald Trump, which will be to his advantage in a rematch. And number two, he's been a steady hand. He's been a dare I say, a normal president. And I know that y'all know what I mean like that when compared with the previous occupant up there. And so I'm going to buy, buy, buy. Yes. Well, three for three, I'm going to buy. And I'll tell you what, I was not worried about Joe Biden as president. I think a lot of it was folks, you know, creating this narrative. You know, a lot of the Fox News right wing tried to use the age and um, Joe Biden's past, you know, verbal slips, which is, was nothing. Um, it was so so made up and, and so inflated. And uh, I guess there's still some residuals of that. Um, it, it's just a situation where our politicians are just older right now at this moment for some reason. Um, and I don't know that uh, when Joe Biden and Donald Trump moved from the political scene at some point later in the 2020s that we automatically get drastically younger? I don't know. Um, it is, um, it's just what it is at this moment. But he's actually, I think, exceeded uh, people's expectations. I saw this very interesting um, tweet by Medium Buying, which is a Republican firm that uh, – they actually talk a lot about ratings and where to place your ads and that kind of stuff once they get political. But they retweeted this article from Politico, but I think they embellished it some. They're like, he's um, doing terrible with Republicans. Uh, Democrats have concerns, and he's upside down with independents. And I'm like, if you've looked at the midterms, if you've looked at every special election or virtually every special election since the Dobbs ruling, how can you say you'd rather be where the Republicans are than the Democrats are? Um, I would see no reason to, you know, change anything up. The midterms, um, you know, when you are the president, the midterm results are very much about the incumbent president, and that was one of the best midterms for an incumbent in quite a while and probably the best first-term midterm for a Democrat and I don't know how long, because George W. Bush had a pretty good 2002, and then um, Bill Clinton had a good 
2000, I'm sorry, 1998, a second midterm, but Democrats traditionally do not have initial good midterm elections at all. And so to me, that was a kind of a resounding at the ballot box endorsement of Joe Biden. Um, so it's three for three. And I don't, I don't, we didn't disagree on any of these um, at all. Maybe that's just become either registering groupthink or these are such clear decisions. What do y'all think? I think they're clear decisions. Very clear today with yeah. these four, it is to me anyway. Yes, I, I think so. So back to groupthink. We're even agreeing on why we agree. Um, well, let's talk about one more topic, and we may not even go get into this much, but it kind of horrified me. Missouri, you know, a lot of places have banned books. They've banned books in schools, and they've done, you know, access to this and access to that or gone after the teachers if they tell the kids how to get audio books from Brooklyn. They did that in Oklahoma. Well, Missouri just took it to a whole new level. They're going to defund the libraries. Um I don't know if this bill will make it through, if it were to make it through, what the repercussions would be. But, Tim, when you saw this, um, what was your initial thought of the Missouri Republicans' plan to defund libraries? Good grief. Uh, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft has introduced a rule to block state funding for libraries. And they say if it is determined that they allow minors access to books that are pornographic are labeled as obscene by the state. That's the part that worries me. Who in the state decides that? By the way, Ashcroft is running for governor up there. And this is piggybacking on what happened last year when the legislature passed a law prohibiting public school libraries from giving students books with photos or drawings determined, again, by the state to be sexually explicit. That law was challenged by library groups and the House Budget Committee chair, a fellow by the name of Representative Cody Smith, retaliated by stripping state funding of all school libraries. And, by the way, he says he's going to be running for statewide office as well. But the state Senate has indicated that it's going to restore that funding. So so we'll just see. Just another – determined by the state, what what, what do you all think? What what are they even talking about? The state – who's the state? Uh, Republicans that run the state. Catherine, your initial (laughs) thoughts on – the Missouri bill to possibly defund libraries. I got to tell you guys that when I read these things about banning books and closing libraries and defunding libraries, it's just heartbreaking to me. It's absolutely heartbreaking. As a child, I, um, I got so much pleasure and learning and um, exposure from reading, it like it opens a, a child's world to everything, and it's just shocking to me that we're at a point in our in this country where we would even consider defunding public libraries. And really, this is I, I just keep going back to the in my mind when I'm thinking about all these things. I just keep going back to 
this is what they want to emphasize in their governing. There's so many things that need attention and funding and uh, uh, responsible reactions. That, but what they're focusing on is, you know, banning books, defunding libraries, you know, school vouchers, uh, you know, and expanding the access to guns. It's just heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking to me. Yeah, I don't know if it took the time for me to go deep in this field, but I'll just say this. They're talking about defunding libraries at a time in which surveys show adult readership of books in America has never been lower. Now, there may be a lot of causes for that, but we know that you know free access to quality literature – would be part of the cure. We also do this in the face of after COVID in which we know that students showed declines from being out of the classroom and how do we begin to remedy that and close that gap? I would think summer reading, Christmas reading, weekend reading, times in which your local library might be open but your school library is closed, or students that can't afford to go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon or any local bookstore and buy books, that would give them ways to get books to read more. We're going to defund libraries. At that moment in time, that seems totally asinine. Um, I certainly hope this doesn't fly, although I have to say you, you want to create more Democrats, Republicans in all these states, do enough of this nonsense, and you're going to lose voter after voter, little by little, by doing stupid stuff like defunding libraries, losing voters that probably agree with you on two or three other issues. Um, well, we want to thank Kara for coming on the show tonight. And next week, we've got one of our favorite guests from Wisconsin, political science professor Anthony Chergoski. Dr. Chergoski is going to come on and talk to us about that state Supreme Court race, which was considered the biggest in 2023. Break that down. Also, we're going to ask him about a lot of other things and, you know, why that happened and what's going on and repercussions in Wisconsin next week. But until then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, night, guys.